First John chapter number 2 tonight. First John chapter number 2. I want to preach from verses 15 through 17. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Very, very familiar to most of us that read our Bibles. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let's read that again one more time, just three short verses. Love not the world, verse 15, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for another evening to be together, Lord, in your house. Father, help us not to just be in the house of God, but Lord, help us to meet with the God of the house of God. Lord, I pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would meet with us. I know that He's in us, Lord. But Father, I pray that He would have liberty to be amongst us. And that, Lord, He would do a work in our hearts. God, I pray that those that were not able to be here tonight, Lord, that You'd bless them. God, I pray that those that are here tonight, that You'd especially bless them. And Father, that You would do in us that which is most needful to draw us closer to You. Father, now we ask these things not just as idle words, Lord. Not just form and function and fashion, but Lord, we ask them, uh, trusting and believing that you'll answer according to your will. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 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 How many of you have read this passage before? I bet just about everybody would raise their hand, if not everybody. First uh, John two fifteen through 17 is one of the keynote verses on uh, separation in the Word of God. And let me just make a statement that I believe is good to have on record as many times as you can have it on record, that I, I uh, support separation and I oppose worldliness. And I believe as believers we ought to do that. In fact, the Bible commands us to do that. We live in a day of compromise. We live in a day when uh, the churches will do anything to get people through the door in the name of evangelism and compassion. But uh, I must ask myself and... And ask those around me, is it really compassion to take a man out of a hog pen and put him in a sanctified hog pen? Is that really compassion? Is it really compassion to uh, take a man out of the gutter and uh, pull him into the miry clay? Is that really compassion? If we make church a worldly place, then we're not doing anything by the sinner coming to church. Only by the house of God being a holy place and a place filled with a holy people, made holy by the blood of Christ, but then effectually holy by the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and lives. Only then are we going to affect people in a way that's going to be positive for the kingdom of God and for the sinner as well. And uh, tonight I just want to give you five quick words. And uh, you said, I don't believe that. And you, you may be right. But uh, five things that I see in this passage, and you can write them down, they all begin with the letter C, and maybe that'll help you to keep track of them a little bit, and I'm going to try to hurry tonight. I want to say a word about the context of this passage. And you might say, preacher, why is that important? Well, one of the greatest rules of Bible study you'll ever learn is this, that context is the greatest guide in all of the Word of God. I can make the Bible say anything if I take it out of 
context. The example was given one time uh, where the Bible says that Judas went out and hanged himself, and Christ then said, Go thou and do likewise, and what thou doest, do quickly. Now, if we take the Bible out of context, the Lord's telling every one of us to go out and hang ourselves. But we know that's not what God's commanding. When we read something in context, it opens the doors. Just as we might gain a minute detail at a uh, hyper-focused uh, photograph, but if we're going to understand the entire photograph, we need to have the panoramic view. And as we study the Word of God, we'll find that context speaks volumes to any passage. But the reason I want us to notice the context is because it refutes a popular uh, heresy that is uh, propagated amongst the church today. Uh, the trend today is to call any preacher that preaches against worldliness and preaches for separation and does so boldly to call him a hateful or mean-spirited person. In fact, you'll find amongst most of the compromisers of God's Word and of God's standards, you'll find that the leading cause for their compromise is quote-unquote compassion. They'll say things like, well, you're, uh, you're uh, quabbling about and quarreling about and debating about things like Bible versions while people are dying and going to hell. And I'd say, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. The question is, is that profitable? Well, I don't know. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Jude that if we're going to uh, present the salvation, we've got to contend for the faith. Uh, Jude took in hand to write about salvation. A lot of people say, well, Jude changed his mind. No, Jude didn't change his mind. He said that when he sought and endeavored to write about salvation, he knew it was needful first that he should write and exhort us that we should contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. You see, if I could put it this way, uh, a man may reach one generation by compromising, but he won't reach any more generations. If we hold true to the Word of God, the work that we do for Christ is a lasting work. Now you say, can a person get saved reading another version of the Bible? Why, yeah. A person can get saved reading the gospel scrawled onto the back of a milk cart. But that doesn't mean anything. The Lord spoke out of a donkey one time too. That don't mean we elect them to pastors. I'm going to make that joke when Larry Rupert's not here. Amen. <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, uh, just because a man can think of a clever way to present something does not make it truth. And you hear people say oftentimes, well, uh, you know, uh, preachers go on and on about standards, but they don't really have compassion. And I would say this, that if we're going to understand the love of God, we only understand it within the light of separation. You say, preacher, what do you mean? The context of this passage is the book of 1 John. The word love is found 33 times in the book of 1 John. That's more than any other book of the Bible. The word love is found 33 times. And in fact, percentage-wise, over 10% of the times that the word love is used, it's used in the book of 1 John. You say, what's the significance? Well, what did John have to say about separation? He said, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, neighbor, it's not unkind to preach separation. What's unkind is to not preach separation. It's not a lack of love to condemn heresy. Uh, it's a lack of love to embrace heresy. Uh, the Bible says, "Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Uh, the fact is, when we share truth and give truth to people, when we preach truth, that's an example of love. That's an expression of love. Anybody can soft-serve someone to get them to like them. But Paul said, Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? The fact is, telling the truth is going to give you some enemies sometimes. Telling the truth is going to make you hated sometimes. 
But there's a lot of people that have to be snatched out of the fire, and the truth is the only thing that'll do it. Denominationalism doesn't save people. The truth does. Uh, we find that entertainment does not save people. The truth does. We find that uh, casual Christianity does not save people. Uh, the truth does. And only the truth as it's presented from the life of a separated believer does this. So John writes about love. In fact, some might say, well, separation's good, but it's not an everyday application type doctrine. I would want you to notice that the book of 1 John is the most personal book in all of the Word of God, excepting maybe Song of Solomon, which of course is personal in a different way. It deals with the relationship between Christ and the, the church. But as far as personal in its content relationship, 1 John is the most personal book in all of the Word of God with language like little children and fathers and love and family and fellowship and communion. John was writing to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the midst of all the talk about love and in the midst of all the talk about fellowship and about communion, John says, don't forget that this world is trying to steal your love from Jesus Christ. Don't forget that loving this world is something that's exclusive from loving Jesus Christ. We see the context of this passage. Christ echoed these very clearly in John 14, 15, when He said, If you love Me, keep My commandments. Man can say he loves God all he wishes to. But it's nothing but empty words if it's not backed up by his life. A man can say he loves God, but the Bible says in 1 John 2, 5, Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. The truth is, no man loves God that's not obedient to his word. Only by obedience to his word do we show to God our love of him, and only by obedience to God's word is our love of him evidence. So the context is is valuable. But I want you to notice that not only do we see the context of this passage, but we see a commandment given here. Now, I know people say, well, commandments are of the law. No, the Bible's full of commandments. And all through the Word of God you'll find commandments. It's true that uh, the law did have many, many commandments, but all through the New Testament we have commandments too. And the commandment given is this, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now you read that passage, and you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the Bible and I sit there and think to myself, I wonder what that means. I don't have all the answers, nor do I understand every verse of the Word of God, nor do I uh, pretend that I understand every single portion of the Word of God. But I sat there and thought to myself, what does that mean to love not the world? I believe there's two things that are implied from this, and uh, you can write them down if you wish. I believe that what he's saying is to love not the temporalness of this world. I believe what John is saying here first and foremost is this. When he says, love not the world, he's talking about loving not the immediate or that which is on this side of eternity. Jonathan Edwards cried out and said, Oh, Lord God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. We're commanded in the Word of God to set our affection on heavenly things, on things above, and we're exhorted time and time again that we're just pilgrims and strangers, nothing but sojourners in this world. I'll tell you the problem with the majority of Christians. You ready? That's how you know it's going to be a sweet sermon when the preacher says, I'll tell you what the problem is. Uh, but let me just share it with you. The problem with most Christians is they're far more concerned with what takes place on this side of death's door than what will take place on the other side. Now, I said Christians, mind you. I didn't say lost uh, barroom drunks. I didn't say prostitutes. I didn't say drug addicts. I mean, most Christians have trouble seeing past the tip of their nose 
We live in this world and we act as if there's no eternal consequences. But the Bible exhorts us time and time again that this world is just the waiting room. This world is a temporary time. And anything we accumulate in this world, uh, it's not going with us. The old preacher said, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. The fact is, everything that we do for Christ, we do on this side of the world. But anything that we do for this world stays on this side of the world. None of it goes to eternity. So I think that's one of the connotations. But I believe there's another thought here, and it's echoed in these words when it says, neither the things that are in the world. You see, the problem is not just Christians loving the immediate. It's not just Christians uh, loving the things that are on this side of the grave. But it's the fact that Christians many times are charmed by worldliness. Or we live in a day eat up with worldliness. A day when most churches, you from going, listen neighbor, from going from the outside to the inside, you can't even tell a difference in most churches. And I'll tell you how that happened. It happened slow. Uh, you've heard the illustration before of how you boil a frog. You don't drop that sucker in a scalding hot uh, pot of water, but instead you put them in it in its cold, comfortable state and just let it heat up gradually. It's what we've seen happen in this world. And we find that the only churches that have stuck by the stuff is the ones... Now, listen to this carefully. The ones that were sticking by the stuff initially on purpose. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? A majority of churches that are uh, were one-time old-timey and are not today, when they were old-timey, they were old-timey because that's what was in vogue and in style. There was a time in this part of the country uh, where high formalistic church services just were not popular. And the formalistic and highbrow church music just wasn't popular. And so you had a lot of churches in this area that loved the Red Church hymnal. They loved the King James Bible. They loved good hearty preaching, if we can put it that way. But they just loved it because it was in vogue. They loved it because it was in style. Culturally, that's where things were at. We've come to a time now the water is heated up pretty hot and the camps are divided. And the only people that are still standing by the Word of God today are the ones that were doing it on purpose. The ones that did that because it was right, not just because it's what people wanted. And we live in a day where if we're going to be separated for God, it's going to be a purposed thing. It's going to be something we'll have to make up our minds to do. And like Daniel, in Daniel chapter number 1, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. We as believers must purpose ourselves that we're not going to be worldly Christians. Not everybody that claims the name of Christ is living in a Christian manner. We live in a day where social drinking, we live in a day where immodesty, we live in a day where no standards either for the pulpit or for the pew, are held high. We live in a day of anything goes. John says if you're going to love God, you're going to have to learn to hate the world. You love something strong enough. Uh, Let me put it this way. A shepherd loves his sheep, but you know what a shepherd hates? A shepherd hates wolves. A farmer, he loves his crops, but a farmer hates weeds. And a Christian that's really living for God, there's some things he's going to love, but there's some things he's going to hate and stay away from too. There's some things he's not going to want any part of. The Bible says we're to stay away from those things. A commandment is given. We're to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But I want you to notice that there is a condemnation given. 
And I believe this is given in God's holy inspired word for the purpose of emphasizing and emboldening. How many of you work on the computer sometimes? A few of you. And you know you click that little bold button. I believe God's clicking the bold button when He makes this statement because He wants us to really get the importance of this before He catalogs what worldliness is. There's a condemnation given. And He says, if any man love the world, if any man, did not say if preachers, did not say if if good church-going people, but it said if any man, so this is a universal standard, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, you know, a lot of stuff people call strong preaching is just the truth on display. But, buddy, that's strong preaching. James put it this way. He said that uh, uh, friendship with the world uh, is the enemy of God. Enmity with God. In other words, if a man is worldly, it just displays how little he loves God. And I would propose to you that chronic, now notice that word chronic, chronic, unrepentant worldliness is a keynote sign that a person has never been truly born again. The Bible says it right there in black and white. It does in mine. I don't know what you've got in your lap. But mine says that if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And you say, oh, that means the, the, the love that God gives us that we display to the world. No, no. It means that he doesn't love the Heavenly Father. He has no love for God. We see it all around us today. You know, it's amazing how many excuses we make for people's lifestyles until we'll finally just admit that there's a good chance they don't know Christ as their Savior. We'll make all the excuses in the world. We'll make them for preachers. We'll make them for family members. We'll make them for friends. And we'll say, oh, they're just backslidden. You can only backslide if you've been front slid at some point. Amen. If there's never been any evidence, never been any fruit, if there's no love of the Father, always see His love of the world, then it's a keynote understanding that that person is lost and undone without Christ. And the Bible says that love of God and love of the world are mutually exclusive things. Only by forsaking the world do we display our love of God. So that tells me a simple truth. And I'm not going to drag it on. I'm just going to give it to you very plain here. Are you ready? If a man is worldly, it tells me he doesn't love God. There's no other way to cut it. I know that's not popular. That's probably why we've got this amazing crowd here tonight. Amen? No, I'm joking. I appreciate every one of you that's here. But very seriously, there's a reason this kind of preaching don't draw them out of the, uh, out of the shops and the, and the street corners anymore. Because this world's gotten in such shape that all anybody wants is their ears tickled. All anybody wants is somebody to come along and scratch that itching ear. And the Bible said there'd come a day when it would be like this. And we as believers look around and we find that the condemnation put upon this world is that no matter how much they talk about love, only by displaying it through obedience to God's Word is anything proven. So we see a condemnation here. But I want you to notice here in the next verse we see a catalog given. What does it say? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, we could take any sin and place it under one of those three categories because the Bible says all that is in the world, everything, every sin. I used to think to myself sometimes about the passage that says that the love of money is the root of all evil. You'll constantly hear that misquoted uh, by people that are socialistic in doctrine and belief. They'll say that money's the root of all evil. Usually what they mean is your money, not their money, right? 
And uh, so they're going to help us by taking it off of our hands. But uh, it does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And I, and I used to think about that and think, how could that be? Of all the twisted and sordid sins in this world, how could money be the root of every bit of it? And you say, well, give me an example, preacher. Why is the prostitute on the street? Because there's, there's somebody that's wanting money out of her life. Why does the drug addict buy his drugs and why are they peddled to him? Because there's money in it. Why is child pornography existent in this world? Somebody's making a buck off of it. You can go right down the line, neighbor, and you'll find that every single sin, somebody's making a dollar off of it somewhere. The love of money is the root of all evil. And when we see these three categories, we find that every sin falls under these things. But understand that being a separated Christian is not just about being separated unto God, but being separated from the world. Just as, as, just as it is not just being separated from the world, but being separated from God. And I put it this way before. Wherever the world's at, that's where the Christian ought not to be. Now, I'm going to try to explain something. I, I hope it is clear. We hear a lot about cultural progression in this day that we live in. People say, well, culture is changing. And they'll say there was a time when the music that we have in churches now wouldn't have been allowed in churches. And that's true. There was a time, friend, they wouldn't let Mr. Moody and Mr. Sankey travel into Scotland because he played with a little uh, collapsible travel organ and the churches in Scotland thought that the organ was devil's music. But uh, there's no question that culture and society changes. What is the church to do and to be about that? Well, I'd explain it very clearly in this way. When it's a matter of sin, a biblically condemned sin... There is no change whatsoever that is allowed for the believer. When it comes to a matter of doctrine, there is no change that's allowed whatsoever for the believer in any way, shape, fashion, or form. But many would say, but preacher, what about things that the Bible does not speak explicitly about? Dress standards or music standards or things of that nature. Let me explain it in this way. If the world is being progressive, the church ought to be regressive. You say, preacher, why, why do you talk so much about old-timey Christianity? Because I believe that's an element of biblical separation. Whatever direction the world is going, the church ought to be, if they are being pulled that way, it ought to be kicking and screaming with their heels dug every single inch. You say, preacher, give me an example. They'll pull the red church hymnal from my cold, dead hand. Same thing's true about this King James Bible. Same thing's true about the standards that I hold to and preach. The fact is, there's no plan of ever changing. You say, well, uh, there was a time when music... Yeah, I know. I understand that. But I promise you this. If there is some church in Knoxville, Tennessee that's going to have rock concerts on their platform, it ain't going to be Walridge Baptist Church. If there is some church that's going to have some some rapper up on there, like an independent Baptist church in Middle Tennessee. None of you all probably know about that, but the fellow used to be an independent Baptist until he took Baptist off the name of his church and started holding rap concerts. By the way, that's the great thing about being an independent Baptist. We're not hitched up to anybody. And what he does in his church don't affect me. What I do in my church don't affect him. But uh, if there's going to be churches in Knoxville, Tennessee going to have rap concerts on their platforms, it's not going to be Wall Ridge Baptist Church. Uh, the position of the Christian is always to be regressive in whatever cultural shifts and changes are taking place. There's some that say, oh, well, Christ was progressive. 
And you can read liberal theology books and read modern theology books and they'll talk about how radical Jesus Christ was. Listen to me, neighbor. Jesus Christ was not radical. The Pharisees were radical in their legalism. What does John write whenever in this passage he says in verse number uh, 7 and 8, and I want you to notice this of chapter 2, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. He says, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. The life that Jesus Christ presented to the world in his earthly ministry was not a radically new life, it was a radically old life. The fact is, Vance Havner put it this way, he said, uh, what people need is not the next new thing, they need so much of the old thing that they haven't seen in so long that it looks like a new thing. What Christ presented was regeneration and salvation by faith. And that's found all through the Old Testament. You go through, how was Abraham justified? By faith. He wasn't presenting something new to the Pharisees, but he was trying to pull the scales off their eyes concerning the truth of God's revelation. Christ was not presenting some new radical way, but the same truth that had been exhibited all through the Word of God, that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law, the Bible says, by, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Christ was not in any way uh, going contrary to the law, but He was fulfilling the law. And He did this time and time and time again. And so the mantra given many times is, oh, well, Christ had a radical ministry. No, Christ had a scriptural ministry. And to a bunch of legalists, that looks radical. Uh, but the truth is, when we stand by the Word of God, that always looks radical to the world. So we see a catalog given. And I just go over these very quickly. The lust of the flesh that deals with our inward sensualities and tendencies. In other words, what takes place within us, the desire to do wrong and to do wickedly, the believer is to try as he can to separate from that. You say, preacher, are you saying we're going to be uh, sinless in this world? No. John's very clear to state that. But what it means is this, and the, the attitude today is if it feels good, do it. And I would say you'd be better off to go off of this premise, if it feels good, don't do it. Now that doesn't mean that uh, there's no time for pleasure and recreation in life. That doesn't mean that every single desire that a person has is wrong. But what it means is this, if a man lives his life satisfying the lusts of the flesh, he's going to be a worldly person, displeasing to God, and he's going to resemble... Uh, the daddy that he had before he was saved, then he will the daddy that he's got after he's saved. has to do with the inward tendencies, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, that has to do with what we see. We only see things that are external from us. You ever stop and think about that? How many of you have ever looked into the back of your head? Anybody? I can't roll my eyes back that far, and even if I could, there ain't enough light to see anything. It'd probably be hollow <laughs> if I had to guess. I'd probably see something about the size of a marble rolling around in there. Uh, with the eyes we see only that which is external. What is the lust of the eyes? Lust of the flesh has to do with that which is within us. Lust of the eyes has to do with that which is external from us. You see, the truth of the matter is, this world wants to pull a Christian into sin. And I promise you, anything that is popular in this world uh, with the worldly crowd, the devil's got his hand on it and his signature in it somewhere. Uh, you can go on down the line. You can look whether it's music or dress standards. And no matter what it is, you can go with different versions of the Bible. You can go on down the line. We could name a thousand different things. We could name denominationalism. We could name formalism. By the way, did you know that formalism is just as wicked and ungodly as liberalism? 
And there's a lot of churches that, that call themselves independent Baptists that are just as caught up in formalism as the liberal crowd is in liberalism, and both of them are a stench into the nostrils of God. I just kind of believe we ought to let the Holy Spirit lead us, don't you? I just kind of believe He ought to lead our services. I mean, it's good. We, you know, we've got a bulletin, and we have... Uh, if you've been here any length of time, you know that bulletin isn't, isn't too ironclad. <laughs> uh, we just try to let the Holy Spirit lead us, and formalism is just as wicked as liberalism is. But we find in this passage that the lust of the eyes has to do with things that we see in this world. And we could categorize a lot of various sins into that. Uh, but it has to do with acting and portraying ourselves like the world. I believe that a Christian ought to have a desire to look different from the world. You say, oh, preacher, here we go. You're going to start telling us how long is too long and how short is too short. No. No, and in fact, if you're asking that, it tells me your heart's not where it needs to be. Standards, listen to me, standards are nothing but an external manifestation of holiness. Holiness is the inward attitude of the heart that expresses itself in outward separation. There's plenty of people in this world that have outward separation with no holiness within the heart. And that's just as wicked. That's just as straight out of hell as anything. You know what God said about that? Uh, God said having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. He looked at the disciples that, or the, the apostles. Boy, I'm going to get it here in a second. The Pharisees. And that's what he said to them. You know how he described the Pharisees? He said, you're whited sepulchers. On the outside, you're beautiful and washed. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And you mark my word, not everybody, listen to me, not everybody that's dressed right and carries a King James Bible knows the Lord. Not everybody that dresses right and carries a King James Bible, not everybody that calls herself old-fashioned or calls herself separated really is. It's a matter of the heart, but it expresses itself outwardly. And so as a Christian, we ought to look and act differently than the world. I want you to notice that it says the pride of life. Pride is the most destructive sin of the human heart. And uh, that's one of the great, great temptations that we have in life. You know what the problem is? We spend so much time getting right that when we finally get right, we think it's got something to do with us. Truth of the matter is, if a man is separated and lives holy, it's only the power of God within him that causes that. Pride was the sin that ensnared the heart of Satan. Uh, pride was the uh, sin that uplifted David and caused him to number the children of Israel. And on and on we could go of examples of pride, but pride is a, a wicked thing. These three elements are present in the temptation that Satan presented before Christ. He said, turn these stones into bread. That's the lust of the flesh. Took him up and uh, to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all uh, phases of time. Said, these could all be yours. That's the lust of the eyes. That's what he was looking at. And finally took him up to a pinnacle of the temple and told him to cast himself down because the Bible says in the book of Psalms that angels will bear thee up lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now that is not given to you and me. Uh, if you get up like some dummy on some big tall building and jump off, you're going to splat. That's what's going to happen to you. That's not written for you and me. That's written only for the Son of God. And so what he was trying to tempt our Lord to do was to reveal His deity before time and uh, to not go to the cross. That was the pride of life. We see it all through. We see it in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eve saw uh, the apple, the lust of the eyes, that it was uh, good for food, good to be eaten, the lust of the flesh, and would make one wise, the pride 
of life. And all through the Bible we can see this trifecta, this trinity of ungodliness and this threefold uh, pattern all through the Word of God. We also find that these represent stages in life. Many times when we're young, we're given to the impulse of the flesh. As we get a little bit older, we have a desire to look like the world and to be like the world and to be seen by the world. That's the lust of the eyes. And finally, when we get old, sometimes there's a tendency to let pride keep us from being able to be exhorted and convicted by the Word of God, the pride of life. So all through the Bible, we see these three things. And they catalog for us the approach of the world and temptation for the believer and the sinner alike. But I want to give you a final thing, and I'm going to hush. We see a caution given. Uh, look what it says. And the world passeth away, the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. In other words, whatever you invest into this world, you've lost. Any of you, I won't ask you to raise your hand. Some people have a problem with this. Others don't. Uh, but some of you may have invested in something. Uh, something in the stock market. I don't, I, don't, I don't even have enough money to go to the supermarket, let alone the stock market, so I don't fool with any of it. But uh, some of you may have done that and made a losing investment. All that money just gone. Burned up, seemingly. You know what God says? You invest in this world, you're making a losing investment. Whatever you put into this world, you've lost. You put your children into this world, you've lost your children. You put your heart into this world, you've lost your heart. You put your money into this world, you've lost your money. Well, if there's anything I could get across to believers, it's this, that whatever investment we make in return in eternity always pays dividends. It doesn't matter what it is. You take your money and spend it on temporal things of this world, you've lost it. You say, well, no, I got that new jet ski or that boat or that new house, that new car. No, I got those new clothes. Yeah, but you don't keep them forever. <laughs> They're going to burn up. If you're like me, you don't keep clothes too long anyway. <laughs> The fact is, anything you invest in this world, you've lost. Because this world passeth away. And the lust thereof. You know what that tells me? What satisfies you in this world won't satisfy you in the life to come. The things that you've done that may have brought you satisfaction, giving in to the lusts of this world, there won't be any place for those in eternity, both for the believer because we'll have no desire, but also in hell because there's no opportunity. The fact is, those that live for this world Everything that they've had and everything that they've done burns up. But there's another alternative. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What does that mean, abideth forever? I believe there's several things we could draw from it. One of them we could draw would be this. The Bible says about those that die in Christ that their works follow them. And that uh, says about Abel that he being dead yet speaketh. Those that live for God, their influence continues to resound past the grave and abound under their glory. But I think there's something further than that. I think what it's saying is this. Those that are separated and living for God, the things that they do in this world abide with them throughout eternity. In other words, whatever you do in this world for Jesus Christ, it counts for something. I said it earlier. you never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. you never seen one with a luggage rack. Whatever you've got, you don't take it with you. But the things that you do for Jesus Christ, the the rewards that will abound to you in heaven. You say, what do I want rewards for? And I'll give you this in hush. I, I've, I've thought a lot about those crowns. And I've given you this. You've heard this, I know. But you'll listen again because I've not closed yet. <laughs> those crowns that we get. You think about, what do you need a crown of jewels for? We're walking on gold when we get there, amen. What do we need a crown of jewels for? 
But we see an exchange between Christ and the believer. We find that Christ gives us life in that we draw a breath. The Bible says that uh, His light was the life of men. And we find that He gives us the breath that we draw. And man, even though he's been given life, has fallen into sin and depravity and thereby died in his relationship with God. And so, once again, Christ gives us life a second time through salvation, eternal life, because He gave His life for us. And so He's given us life, and we've lost that life, and He's given us life again. And because of that, Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's given us life, and we take that life and lay it at His feet and say, God, I'm going to serve you with my life. I'm not going to live for me, but I'm going to live for you. So we've given our life back to Christ. And one of these days, if we've lived for God, the Bible says we'll be given a crown of life, and a crown of rejoicing and several others. And so we've given Him our life, but He takes it, and symbolically in that crown, He gives that life back to us. And you say, well, boy, that'll be nice to be able to wear that crown all throughout heaven. No, I think when you get there, you're going to do like those elders did, and you're going to take that crown off. That represents your life. You know, take it and you're just going to toss it at His feet. Toss it at His feet. You say, what about all the people that have wronged me in my life? Well, the Bible says that when Christ returns in Revelation chapter 19, do you believe Revelation chapter 19 tonight? I do. That He's crowned with many crowns. You say, where did He get them crowns? I believe He picked all them crowns up that were cast at His feet placed him on his head. And when he returns in power and in glory, in judgment upon this world, all the wickedness and ungodliness, all the suffering that we've dealt with, all the sorrow, all the tears, he'll have those crowns on his head. and He'll be bringing our life with him as he judges this world. Interesting exchange that goes between the believer and Christ of giving our life back and forth and back and forth. I wonder tonight, maybe, if there's not some area of your life you're holding on to. It belongs to Him. You wouldn't draw a breath if it wasn't for Him. But let me give you a more tragic result. If it wasn't for Him, you might be drawing a breath right now. But one of these days, you'd be drawing a breath in eternal damnation too if it wasn't for Him. He's given His life on Calvary so that you could know Him as your Savior, so that you could be saved and born again. As a result of that, I believe that it's the responsibility of every believer to take their life in every area of it. Let me tell you how separation works. You remember in Joshua uh, chapter number 8 after uh, Achan had taken of the accursed thing. He took it and hid it in his camp. There was sin in in the camp of the children of Israel. Sin in their life. And God exhorted Joshua to get the sin out. Joshua said, well, how am I going to do that? And you know, God could have told Joshua exactly who it was that had the accursed thing. But there was a pattern given for the believer. You know what he did instead? He said, Joshua, I want you to give me all of the children of Israel. In other words, Joshua had no clue who it could have been. It could have been his own blood and kin. But he said, Lord, I'll kill him. I'll kill him no matter who it is. We'll, we'll purify and cleanse the camp. He gave them all to God. And you know what God did? God said, no, it's not all of them, but it's this family. And then it's this family. And then it's this family. And finally came down to the name of Achan. You see, Joshua, when there was sin in the camp, Joshua's responsibility was to take the whole camp and give it all to God and let God decide what should stay and what should go. Let me tell you what a believer does when they really surrender to Jesus Christ. 
They take their whole life and they say, Lord, I give it all to You. Anything in my life that You see unfit, I'll purify it from amongst myself. But it's all Yours. And then the Lord starts going piece by piece through it, narrowing it down, convicting us, showing us areas of our life. We need to submit to Him. And He always gets to the root of the problem because He knows what it is in the first place. God's not interested in a sanctified part of you. He's interested in all of you and He'll do the sanctifying. 